Nutella's original secret formula is one of the most closely guarded recipes in the world. It's been kept secret for over 130 years, but several years ago, someone in the media claimed to have uncovered this recipe and proceeded to post it online. And then Coke explained, no, that's not the secret recipe. At least that's what they claimed. What are some of the other secret recipes or closely guarded recipes that you can think of? This was the short list that I came up with. Colonel Sanders Kentucky Fried Chicken. Now that's, that would be good to know what that recipe is. What about McDonald's French fries? Or Krispy Kreme donuts? Hershey's chocolate? Is there a recipe or a secret formula for your life? If so, would anyone want to copy or steal the recipe that you're using? Thousands of people claim to have found the recipe for living the good life. Here are some common ingredients. Material comfort, health or well-being, being able to engage in and even enjoy meaningful work, having loving relationships with the people around you and belonging to a community. If your life were like a meal, what recipe are you following? What are the ingredients that are crucial for your well-being? As a Christian, what would you say is the secret recipe for life? as God intended it. In our text today from 1 Peter chapter 3, it's the 18th message in this letter of Peter, there are some surprising insights in how God wants you to live your life. And the recipe that's unique to the Christian faith among all the philosophies and religions of the world, there is nothing that can compare. There are two key ingredients on the list and then a third. The first that we'll see in our text is Jesus is your foundation. The second is the spirit as the expression of your life. Those are the two key ingredients. And then, of course, just add water. Baptism is the third ingredient. And I'm publicly posting this on the Internet. Actually, it's not that secret. And it's actually fairly simple. It's what's surprising is, given how public and simple it is, how rarely it's followed by people in general and even by you and me. The title of my sermon is The Secret Recipe to Life. And in our home, we try to involve kids in cooking from an early age. And then when they get to be a certain age, we even have them make a meal. I know that's dangerous, but... We really risked it. My hope is this morning that no matter how old or young you are, that you will think about this meal that you're preparing. You think about your life as a meal and what's going into that preparation. Maybe you've been making meals for many, many decades. Maybe you've never made it your own meal yet. God wants you to think about your life in terms of a meal. He cares, it matters, what you're putting into this meal. Let's begin by reading God's word together. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18. This is the word of God. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ 
who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Let us pray. Thank you, God, that you do care about how we're living our lives. Care so much, in fact, that you have given us this, these simple ingredients. Jesus, our foundation. The Spirit is our expression. And the beautiful waters of baptism. So I pray, Lord, that as we explore this topic together, that you will help those who are misspending their lives and are eating poorly, so to speak, to renew and to be reformed and to be revived. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The first key ingredient in the meal of your life, according to Peter, and I believe this is how God wants us to live, is Jesus. He's the base. He's the foundation for a well-lived life. The reason for this is because he is unique in the kind of person that he is. Christians know Jesus as the God-man or God incarnate. The Christian faith begins with a knowledge of the person of Jesus. In the beginning, when God created mankind, he did so that we might enjoy fellowship or friendship with him, which I've mentioned earlier in the service today. The human race was not created to be angry with God. We are. We were not created to be angry with one another. We are. We were not created to be at war with the environment, with creation. We are. And we were not created to be at turmoil within our own hearts. We are. That's why Jesus has to be your foundation. Look at the text. Verse 18 says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. What a promise. You see, there, there's... There are volumes in this phrase that Jesus came to bring you to God. Jesus came to restore you into the presence and communion or fellowship with your Creator. Now this does mean physically, bodily, someday you will be in the physical presence of God. And this will be in a renewed world, the heavens and the earth. All that is broken will be mended But bringing you to God, quote-unquote, also means repairing what's broken in your spirit and in your relationship with God now. You see, what, what, who Jesus is was intended not only to repair someday all that is physically broken with the world, but spiritually, who Jesus is and what he did repairs your relationship with God now. What this means is, and this is the bad news, in your current state, apart from Christ, you have no relationship with God. Paul explains it in Ephesians this way in chapter 2. At that time, you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. Godless. And if this were simple, we wouldn't have so many people bragging and boasting about being without God. I don't need God. I can be good without God. These are some things that my friends who are atheists say. Now, they're completely misunderstanding the secret recipe to a well-lived life with Jesus as the foundation. Here's how it works. When Jesus was born, something called the Incarnation, he took to himself a true human nature. Jesus didn't come into being when he was born. The Christian teaching is that Jesus was a pre-existent divine person. Now, every one of us, men and women, came into being as persons 
when the egg and the sperm inside your mother's womb were united, and this is not my biology class, but I used to teach biology, so forgive me. Fertilization is the beginning of a human life. It's the beginning of a human person. That's part of the debate that's going on when people are debating whether abortion is against the will of God or not. Scripture's clear, I believe, that life begins at conception, at the fertilization of egg and sperm in before even anybody knows it. And that life, that, that soul, that being has no voice. And so our responsibility as Christians is to be a voice for those who can't speak for themselves. But that's not how it worked with Jesus. Yes, he was a true human uh, being. And no, the Bible doesn't give us a little magnifying lens on, on the the biochemistry of what happened in Mary's womb, it's a mystery. But here's what we know. Jesus was a person prior to the incarnation. So he didn't derive personhood from his mother. He derived a human nature and added it to his divine person. Why this technical and detailed explanation? What this means is As a divine person with a human nature, he is the firstborn of an entirely new race of people. No longer defined by being far from God. If the virgin birth didn't happen, then the cross could have never meant anything. So the pole stars of our faith, the the guiding stars of our faith is the supernatural incarnation virgin birth and the catastrophic judgment of Christ on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection. And between these two truths, all Scripture hangs. And we have the secret of the the best-lived life Starting with Christ as your foundation means that you're starting fresh. You want a new start? You want to you reboot? You want to do some life hacking? Then start fresh. Stop drawing your identity from the personhood of the man, Adam, who defied God with his wife and was thrown far from God out of the garden never to return again. Despite all of our efforts, we see in all of the patriarchs, including Noah, who's mentioned in this passage, efforts to return to God, return to God, return to God, return to God. Maybe this is the new Adam. Maybe this new, maybe David, maybe Abraham, maybe Solomon. And each one, one after the other, shows us it wasn't a fresh enough start. We needed a whole new start to the human race, and that's Jesus. Now you might be thinking, who could object to this? Such an extravagant offer, an undeserved, unmerited, gracious offer from an offended God to start over? What could be wrong with that? Fact is, most people don't like this way to live life. Most people want to establish our own righteousness, our own standing, our own personhood. We, we, we know we're killing ourselves, but all the alternatives to us seem unappealing because you have to admit that you're a sinner, that you cannot save yourself. You have to admit that your sin is offensive to God and it's, it's made you unfit to be in a relationship with God and others. Just as Adam and Eve were cast out of Eden, you have to admit that you deserve to be cast out from the presence of God. And the only one who can bring you back is Jesus Christ. As it turns out, these aren't so easy to do. So beginning the recipe of the life that God intends you to live, beginning with the foundation of Jesus Christ, isn't as straightforward as it might at first seem. Your sinful nature doesn't 
want to do things that are good for you. That's our argument. And the resistance, the negative inertia that you feel in your heart and in your brain and in your hands and your feet of doing what is good for your sister, your brother, your parents, your children, your neighbors. The inability to control your mouth and your thoughts to destroy rather than to bless it. Proves that you need to be brought back to God, that you are far from God, and you cannot do it yourself. Now everyone's on his or her own journey in discovering this truth. I don't know where you're at today. I know some of you. The fact is that sooner or later, you're going to discover that all of your efforts to live life well are going to fail apart from Jesus as your foundation. He's the first ingredient to living life the way God designed it. Now look at what the text tells us that he did. I mentioned it already, but we should see it in the passage. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. That's what theologians call the humiliation of Christ. That's worth making note of. There are two great moments, if I can say this, or phases in the career of Christ. And pastors and theologians call these phases his humiliation, and you know the second one? His exaltation. We have in this passage a comprehensive picture of the entire career of Christ. We see his humiliation, his suffering and death, in verse 18. And it continues that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh. But then notice the end of 18, we see the second phase of Jesus' career, of his ministry as, as our Redeemer, made alive in the Spirit. And look at verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ, 22, who has gone into heaven, that's the ascension, is at the right hand of God. Now, God doesn't have hands. He doesn't have a body. But the right hand is a way of using human terms to describe a divine reality that we wouldn't understand otherwise. Aren't you thankful for that? That God has used figures of speech in the Bible to explain himself to us. Calvin said that Scripture, when it speaks this way, it's like God saying goo goo gaga to us. It's baby talk from a divine standpoint, but for us, it's like, whoa, the right hand of God. That blows my mind. So God's feeding us like, like a mother bird chews up food and drops it into the beak of a baby. He's giving us teaspoons of truth. And the right hand of God is one such truth. It's called the session. Jesus is being seated. So it's his, the, the exaltation phase is his resurrection, his ascension, and is being seated at the right hand of God. And it ends in 22 with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. I'll add, Hebrews 2 tells us that we don't yet see this. That's going to come back to be a relevant point for us in just a moment. What's true of Christ, all enemies have been placed at his feet, which is the position of a victorious general. And when he's seated, it means that he's at rest. What's true of Christ, we don't necessarily see or experience. It's a battle. And by the way, Peter, at this point in his letter, is entering an in-depth discussion about spiritual warfare, which we're going to see over the next several weeks. Well, this is the foundation of Christ, the first key ingredient for a well-lived life. He has to be the base. If you're going to figure out the secret to life, you must start with Christ. The second thing you need 
The way I phrased it here is the spirit as your expression. Now this is almost as important as the first. I say almost. If all you needed was Jesus as your foundation, why is it that so many of us, including myself, are so discouraged at times, dispirited, defeated? If everything has been placed at the feet of Christ, and he has been seated in the position of a triumphing general, and he's the foundation of my life, what's the problem? If you have figured out the secret to life in Christ, why doesn't it look like you've figured it out more often? I'm reminded here of uh, the Lord of the Rings, rather of the Hobbit, and you know the name of the famous dragon, right? Smaug, Smog. He's literally sitting on a mountain of gold. He can't spend it, but he can't bear the thought of the loss of even a single coin. Now, this isn't the time to get into the Arkenstone and some of the deeper Tolkien myths. It's a big picture point that I'm making. Smog does not enjoy his riches. He only enjoys depriving others of enjoying his riches. Do you get what I'm saying? He's sitting on a, on a mountain of gold that he can't spend and he can't enjoy, but he's not going to let you spend it or enjoy it. One commentator explains it this way. Smaug is a scathing indictment of misappropriated wealth. He will guard it as long as he lives, never knowing why. We don't want to be like this dragon with the foundation of gold for our lives. I'm speaking figuratively, but judging based on statistics, most of you and certainly most Americans are in the top, top, top percent of the wealthiest people in the world. But I'm speaking figuratively. Heaven is described as a city whose streets are paved with gold. The most precious thing on earth is asphalt in the new world. We've been blessed beyond belief with the forgiveness of sins. What, what, what can you pay for that? So Jesus, as your foundation, I'm saying, and hear me out, is not enough. If you're just adding Jesus on to an already existing recipe or formula for living your life, you're not going to do well. Jesus must really be your foundation, which requires then that the Spirit is your life's expression. This is the second ingredient. Take a look at our text. Christ also suffered once for sins, verse 18, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And here's my phrase, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. In which, I would say in which spirit, He went and preached. We'll get to that verse in a moment. What does this mean, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit? I see layers of meaning here. He died as to his human nature. I think that's at least part of what it means. The Son of God didn't die. The Son of Man died. The person of Jesus died, but his divine nature can't die. So in the flesh here points to Jesus' mortal human nature. That's at least part of what it means. Made alive in the Spirit means Jesus didn't raise himself from the dead. 
the Holy Spirit raised Christ from the dead. So there was a, a, an, an interworking. The Father sends the Spirit to raise the Son from the dead. There's a cooperation amongst the members of the Trinity. So in that sense, made alive in the Spirit speaks to the, to the Holy Spirit. But my Bible has this word spirit lowercased. The ESV, which is the version of the Bible we use here, is forcing a parallel that I don't think is absolutely necessary. In other words, they're saying that in the flesh, in the spirit, have to have the same weight. They have to be parallel, exactly parallel here. I don't think so, but here's the thinking. If he dies as to his human nature, when he comes back, he has a living human nature, a resurrected human nature. That's how you read here, made alive in the spirit, little s. But I'm seeing, uh, there's no capital letters in Greek, and I'm seeing, as I said, layers of meaning. Yes, Jesus' human spirit is resuscitated from death in the resurrection. There's no question about that. But I believe the Spirit himself raises Christ from the dead, which is alluded to with this phrase. And flesh isn't just Jesus' human nature, it's the sinful world we live in. So, we see in 1 Peter chapter 1, this is where I came to this conclusion, all flesh is like grass. and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord that is, it remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. You see, he was put to death in this sinful world. Romans 8.4, make note of that verse, says Jesus was made in the likeness of sinful flesh. He was put to death in the flesh in some ways, but not in other ways. He didn't die for his sin. He died for our sin. So Paul in Romans 8, when he says he was made in the likeness of sinful flesh, is describing how Jesus is moving through this sinful world without himself being stained or contaminated by the sinful world. So flesh refers to a a way of life that ends in death for every single one of us. And Jesus, in his humiliation, enters this way of life. It's as if he's, he has gold to spend and he enters our country and is, is using dollars that have no value, counterfeit money. Flesh is a Fruitless, purposeless, meaningless, empty, dead-end way to live. And that's where Jesus died. And so his death doesn't merely end your personal sin debt. It does. The just for the unjust. It ends a way of life. And, And if I'm right on that, then being made alive in the Spirit also is a way of life. See, Jesus willingly enters a realm of futility and vanity in which curse and sin and death define us. That's the ingredients. He submits himself to it. He experiences death to its fullest and by the power of the Holy Spirit enters a new realm of existence where life and spirit dominate. And the expression of life on the other side of Jesus' grave is spirit. The spirit is the environment of heaven's victory. And so verse 22, which I've read, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, is presently, for Peter's readers and for us, is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Having been subjected to him, he has won the victory. That's spirit. 
And so as you're over this mixing bowl of your life, you've got a foundation, Jesus. But if you're not walking in the Spirit, you're functionally living as if Jesus never died or he stayed in the grave. This is what I'm saying. And it's a consistent theme in the New Testament where having been born again by the Spirit, we need to walk or live in the Spirit. And that's not a to-do list, by the way. I mean, it is. There are things that you should do, but it's freedom. It's love, it's joy, it's peace. This is God's gift to you. So not only is Spirit how Jesus is raised from the dead, it is the environment of heaven's victory, and it is what guarantees your connection to Christ, all his benefits. Paul in Ephesians chapter 1 says, In him, that is in Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of your inheritance until we acquire the possession of it. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. This is what we call the assurance of salvation. Who Jesus is can never be changed. He's the eternal Son of God. What he did took place in history. It cannot be undone. And he is now at the right hand of God. He sent his Holy Spirit to all who believe as a guarantee that what happened to him will happen to you. And no one can take that away. And so, for a well-lived life, you need to have spirit. The Holy Spirit. Not just present in your life. Yes, present in your life impacting your life, controlling your life. If you were to get a new fan to help cool you off in your bedroom, summer's coming, our air conditioning units are running, and I notice that they are plugged in, thank God. Now, I'm the sort of mechanic where I could forget to plug it in and think there's something wrong with it, okay? The fan has to be plugged in. Now, the spirit isn't just an electrical current, but it's something that engages your choice. It requires a determination. It requires a commitment. I'm not saying that Holy Spirit is a secondary add-on to our faith. This is a common Christian error. But if Jesus has done this wonderful thing for you and given you this gift as a foundation of your life, in cooperation with him, your job is to walk in the spirit having been raised by the Spirit to new life and participating in Jesus' victory even now. I visited Rob Kirk, who just had a hip replacement yesterday, and I read to him from John chapter 5. Jesus says, The one who believes in me has passed from death to life. This is not something we're waiting for. Not in every way. You have eternal life. This is the expression of the Spirit and the second ingredient. Jesus' foundation, Spirit expression. Third and finally, I know this is cheesy, just add water. Just add water. Baptism gets a special focus here and we need to give it some attention. We don't often get a passage that speaks so directly to the sacrament of baptism, but Peter does so here. What's the importance of Christian baptism? Well, Jesus commands baptism, so uh, unnecessary delay of Christian baptism, which is being uh, either immersed or covered with water or sprinkled with water, effusion with water, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit by a pastor. That's Christian baptism as part of a local church. That's baptism, sort of dictionary definition. It's a command. 
so whether you agree with it or not, believe it in or not, Jesus commands that Christians are baptized. It's one of two sacraments, that and the Lord's Supper. And so if you have nothing else from hearing me this morning, baptism is a requirement for Christianity. And it should not be unnecessarily delayed. But secondly, baptism has no meaning all by itself. Its meaning is derived from something else. It's a symbol or a type of Christ's blood. So type is the copy. That's important. Anti-type is the original. So the original is Christ's blood. And baptism is the sacramental symbol of Christ's blood. Christ's blood wouldn't make for very good cleansing. If you were to wash your shirt with blood, it would turn red and be stained and it would be ruined. But we're not talking about clothing that needs to be cleansed, but sin. And sin is cleansed by death because death is the punishment that our sins deserve. And so when you undergo baptism, you're undergoing something of greater significance than simply the application of water to your body. By God's appointment, the application of water, no matter how much it is, the amount doesn't matter so much, although we argue about this a lot as pastors and Christians. How much water should you use? I'm not sure it matters. When you undergo baptism, there is a cleansing that takes place that doesn't come from the water. Well, how does that work? It's a mystery. Sacrament literally means mystery. We take this on faith. Water is applied to your physical body and something spiritual happens to your soul which can't be seen or touched. Your status before God, which only God can see, changes. Baptism is also an antitype. It's the original of another type, which is in our passage, the flood. Take a look. In which, verse 19, he went, Jesus or the Holy Spirit, we're not sure which there, and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. So we're back in Genesis chapter 6. There's a reference here to the Old Testament. And the building of the ark. It says the ark was being prepared. So for 120 years, we see this. A few, that is eight persons, Noah's family, were brought safely through the water. Verse 21, baptism is the antitype to this. That's what corresponds mean. If you underline that, you could write in the margin, antitype. So the flood is an analogy of something or a symbol of something that's coming. Think of it. The waters of judgment destroy the world because of sin. And baptism is an antitype of that. The flood was a picture of the coming baptism in the New Testament. The flood destroyed the old world of sin and ushered in a new world where eight persons were saved in an ark. Likewise, baptism, fulfilling the symbolism of the flood and the ark, you experience the destruction of the old world and you're ushered into a heavenly mode of existence. Now, God could have done this just by snapping his fingers, but he's decided 
in his wisdom, and he didn't consult me, that baptism is how he wanted to communicate this truth to you. So I'd advise you to celebrate that. To give thanks to God for this mysterious, perplexing, profound aspect of our faith. That in baptism's waters, there is a symbolic and real connection to the spiritual world of cleansing and judgment, of the old passing away and the new coming. Now, a quick comment about who gets baptized. A baby can't think about these things, nor should the child be expected to think about these things. So an experience of a child being baptized is different in some ways than that of an adult. What's the same is that God is communicating to you, either before you have faith, something you'll discover as you are raised in a Christian home, we pray and hope, or after you have faith, something that you discovered as a non-Christian and you came to your senses and believed the gospel for the first time. In baptism, you discover, either before or after, that God loves you. And the water of baptism, which touches your skin, is a reminder that God embraces you. This is a key ingredient in a well-lived life. Now we're spending a few minutes on baptism. We don't want to suggest that somehow baptism causes salvation. As I said, it has no power apart from God's work through the Holy Spirit. The technical term here is efficient cause. The Spirit of God and the death and resurrection of Christ are the efficient causes of salvation. They're what effects your salvation. Baptism and faith are instrumental causes. Faith is more important than baptism. You can't be saved without faith, but you could be saved without baptism. So they're both instrumental causes, but not of the same degree. So God gives us baptism. It's a key ingredient, whether you remember your baptism or not, whether you realize you've been baptized or not, whether your heart was in it when you were baptized or not. When you discover its meaning, you celebrate it, you lean into it, you rejoice in it, because in baptism, God has embraced you, and he will never let you go. Now, I've skipped over some tricky parts of this passage. I don't know if anybody noticed that. But there's, my, there's a method to my madness. They're not important. And I'm, one of my goals as a preacher is to teach you to read the Bible the way it needs to be read. And part of that means you're not going to get distracted by things like preaching to the spirits in prison. I don't know what that means. I really don't. I have, I have a few theories. I don't think it means that Jesus, between his death and resurrection, went to hell. That just doesn't make sense anywhere in Peter or in the rest of the Catholic epistles or in the rest of the New Testament. And it's a very bad read of the Old Testament. Very bad read of the Old Testament. It's also been used as a way of manipulating and justifying certain practices by certain churches down through the centuries, which I despise. So I don't like that view. It could mean that after he was raised from the dead, he is preaching to all of his enemies, long since gone, saying, I told you so! kind of what I think it means. Going all the way back to Noah and all the way to our present day, the resurrection and ascension of Christ is a declaration that God is right. Let all of his enemies be damned, and they will be. And we see them judged in our text. 
Now, Socrates once said, the unexamined life is not worth living. That may be an exaggeration, but certainly it is true to a degree. God is calling us to examine the recipe that we're using. Now, my wife is an amazing cook. I'll cook occasionally, and my cooking episodes are epic. Let's just leave it at that. Now, from time to time, a recipe floats onto the table that we'll just say isn't a winner. It's like maybe like once a year, twice, three times tops. And our policy is there's so many recipes out there these days. Why repeat a bad recipe? I mean, you know, life is short. Let's at least have an average meal. We don't need to repeat a bad meal. The definition of insanity is doing something over and over again the same way, expecting a different result. And I'm challenging you this morning to examine your life. If you don't like the meal you're eating, why do you keep cooking it? God in Christ has offered a recipe that is unassailable, that is guaranteed to succeed. Maybe not exactly the definition of success that you had in mind, but that's part of your losing formula. A foundation of Christ expressed in the Spirit, sealed in baptism. That's it. That's the way He wants you to live. And it is no secret. It's not kept under lock and key. It's not hidden in a safe, a briefcase with a spy carrying it handcuffed to his wrist. It's all over the internet, and a lot of places they get it pretty close to right. How can we apply this message to our life? I want you this morning, first of all, to celebrate your baptism. Celebrate it. Do you know what it means to be baptized? You've been saved from judgment. All the world has perished. And you, little old you, sinful you, have been chosen to be saved. Nothing of your own doing. You've been lifted up from evil, death, and destruction in the ark of Christ's body and blood, or the church, however we interpret that. The old world has has died, and you've been ushered into a new world that dove with the olive branch. You've been united to Christ's death and resurrection, which guarantees your future. And finally, in baptism, you've been given the ability, and we didn't spend time on this this morning, to have a clear conscience. What does that mean? I don't think it so much means that as you look back on your life, you made no mistakes. Do you hear me? It means as you look to God, you're standing on Christ. That's what it means. My conscience is clear. I am not my own. I have been purchased, body and soul, by the blood of Christ. I am not trying to establish my reputation or prove my worth. It has been done. My conscience is clear. I want you to lean into your baptism, to celebrate it. And I'm encouraged in this by one of my mentors, some of you know Tim McGuire, who has a practice of communicating with each of his grandchildren on the date of their baptism and going on a a pop-pop date with them and just reminding them that God loves them. And Tim has become a father to me and to my kids in some ways. And had it, we spent time with him on vacation earlier this year, and he met Stasi. And on, a, on the anniversary of Stasi's baptism, he sent her this poem. For you, God made the world out of nothing. For you, God called Israel out of Egypt. And for you, God brought Israel back from exile. 
For you, Christ came in the world to teach the children. For you, Christ died on the cross and rose again. For you, God sent the Holy Spirit to give you strength to live the way that you should. For you, Christ will come again. And then the poem ends with this. I promise, I'm getting goosebumps, I promise to tell you this story until you make it your own. And so you were baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Let's celebrate our baptism. And the second challenge for you this morning, you heard it in the sermon, you need to live in the Spirit. This is a whole new mode of existence. It's a currency that actually has value. It's backed with heaven's gold. This mode of existence was entirely unsuspected in which the death of the perfect man begins the unwinding of sin and the repair of what is broken in our lives and in the world. Nothing can ever remain the same after Jesus was born and since Jesus died. Literally, everything has changed. Everything is changed. That's the Spirit. When Paul says that I am a new creature in Christ, that's what he's saying. The old is gone. Behold, the Spirit. All things are new. A theologian, Helmut Thalica, says this. Quote, everything, literally everything happens differently than we imagine. The cunning devices of the devil become the chief act in our salvation in history. Now everything happens exactly as we dare to hope in those moments when we show the greatest abandon in our faith in Jesus Christ. That's the Spirit. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the gospel. Thank you for Peter's articulation of it and for the parts that are unclear or complicated. We, we shrug our shoulders. We are not theologians. We are not masters. We are ordinary people. But for the parts that are clear, for the foundation of Christ, life in the Spirit, sealed with baptism, Thank you, Lord. Thank you that nothing can remain the same for us. May it be so. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the church house located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.